This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. We have a new CEO at Sherlin Williams announced this morning. It just came out before we started this podcast, so we won't have a lot of detail today. We will definitely be talking about it tomorrow. In the past, the CEOs of Sherwin Williams have been huge players in getting Cleveland to move forward. It's today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Layla Tassi, Laura Johnston, and Lisa Garvin. And we got stuff to talk about. Frank LaRose, rebuked by the unanimous Ohio Supreme Court Monday, is not our only culture warrior to be having a bad week. State Senator Jerry Serino of Lake County got his own smackdown Tuesday involving his effort to block the citizens of Cleveland from being able to govern themselves. Laura, what happened? Well, House Speaker Jason Stevens made this pretty clear. The bill passed the Senate, but it will not pass through the House before the November 7th election. And this probably gives the proponents of the participatory budgeting, the People's Budget Amendment in Cleveland, a huge sigh of relief because there was a lot of confusion over that. So Jerry Serino, he's a Kirtland Republican who apparently lived in Cleveland at one point but does not now, sponsored this legislation that would prohibit localities from any budgeting scheme that would allow public funds to be distributed or otherwise dispersed by a vote of the residents. So basically, sure, Cleveland, you can pass whatever amendment you want, but we're going to nullify it by making it illegal. And this people's budget wants to set aside 2% of the city's general fund every year, about $14 million, to give residents control via this 11-person steering committee. So Stevens thinks it's important that taxpayers' money be spent transparently, but decisions ought to be made by elected officials who are accountable to voters. But he said that this is a potential violation of the home rule provision in Ohio's constitution, which honestly has not stopped the state legislature in the past at all. Yeah, although this one crosses the line in ways previous ones had not. I think this is pretty clearly a unanimous Ohio Supreme Court decision saying you can't do it. Look, this has become typical of Jerry Serino. He just tries to grab headlines. He's not really doing the work. You know, he's got the bill that the Senate passed and the House hasn't, you know, is turning what turned college campuses into you know, almost fascist states. It's He's bizarre in what he goes after. He has nothing to do with Cleveland. He doesn't represent Cleveland. This is none of his business, but he saw a way to get some headlines, so he put together this bill, and he should just stay out of Cleveland's business. This is about self-governing, and thank heavens for Jason Stevens seeing that. He did say it probably would never pass. You got to wonder if this is Jason Stevens giving the smackdown to Senate President Matt Huffman. Huffman is rumored to be seeking to replace Stevens as the House Speaker if he gets elected to the House next year. And this might be one of Stevens' ways of embarrassing Huffman because he can't get a bill from one of his big supporters passed. Right. Well, because it did. It got through the Senate. And now he's saying, I'm in control of the House and it's not happening here, which I mean... I, the infighting in between these legislators and the back and forth between the Senate and the House is mind boggling and confusing and frustrating. But like at least J- Jason Stevens did stand up. And remember, he had his own fight, leadership fight last year with Derek Marin over who was going to be House Speaker. So at least he's being considerate of 
other people, you know, it's not just like my, you know, whatever the Republicans want, the Republicans get. Well, Matt Huffman and the Senate are out of control. They keep doing things that, that are bad. I mean, the whole issue one was their big push. Stevens in the House almost passed that reluctantly. Um, these guys in the Senate just keep doing things that are counter to the interests of Ohioans, which is what this bill is. You're taking away the right of Cleveland voters to determine their fate. Whether you agree with participatory budgeting or not, it's up to Cleveland to decide. And Stevens, at least, is showing some sober thinking about how to govern in stopping the antics of Jerry Serino and Matt Huffman. So it was good to see that yesterday. And I love the headline, you know, Jerry Serino's bill is dead, completely dead as it should be. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Why is freshman Ohio Congressman Max Miller pushing a bill to stop congressional offices from spending public money on non-United States flags? Lisa. I did not know this about Max Miller. I knew he was Jewish, but I didn't know that he's one of only two Jewish Republicans in the House. So he introduced an amendment to keep congressional offices from spending tax money on displaying non-USA flags. He's upset over a Palestinian flag that's outside Representative Rashida Tlaib's office. She's the Democrat from Michigan. This was uh, mentioned in a published report in the Washington Examiner. Tlaib is the daughter of Palestinian immigrants. She has criticized Israel's uh, treatment of Palestinians in the past. Um, Miller, in his, and this is an amendment to the spending bill, he said that the halls of Congress belong to America. A Palestinian flag has no place here. And he's calling for the U.S. to support Israel's right to exist in peace and safety. Now, this is one of the rare bipartisan moments among the Ohio caucus. Um, everyone is supporting Israel uh, unequivocally, from Sherrod Brown and J.D. Vance to Representatives Dave Joyce, Bob Lada, Chantel Brown, and Amelia Sykes. Yeah, and it's probably because what we're seeing come out of the original uh, invasion is kind of atrocities, man. It's it's the videos that have come out and the way civilians were targeted has just alarmed much of the world. Uh, and everybody feels like they want to do something. I mean, you're not supposed to do that when you're creating wartime. Uh, it's just, this creates a, a difficult division because it does feel a little bit like an anti-Arab kind of bill. You can't have this flag flying on your on your office. It, it, it seems like it's a bit of an overstep, but people are so outraged they're trying to do something. They are, and and this is this is not a black and white. You know, there are plenty of innocent Palestinians that are also dying, but I think that you know Congress has to show united front, and and Bibi Netanyahu is kind of like Trump of the Middle East, so it's a very gray situation. But I think she should take the flag down. I think Congress does need to provide a united front here. Well, this is one where I think everybody needs to take a stand. This is like when Russia invaded Ukraine. Invasions like this are not okay. The taking of civilians as hostages, the slaughter of civilians, not okay. And and the civilized world is saying, no, Hamas, this is not okay. Uh, and that's what this is all part of. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is this a bogus move to get out the vote for the presidential election in 2024? Layla, why are some legislators proposing an amendment to the Ohio Constitution to guarantee a right 
to hunt and fish. What's next? That you get, you're guaranteed a right to buy red cars or, (laughs) you know, pick up chainsaws at the Home Depot. Why do we need to articulate this as a right? I know. I mean, if this isn't a very carefully engineered attempt to get Republicans to the ballot next year, I mean, then then it's just one of the dumbest proposals for a constitutional amendment in, in history. So the right to hunt and fish amendment would declare that the right to hunt and fish shall be forever preserved for the public good, and it would guarantee a right for people to use traditional methods to hunt and harvest fish and wildlife. The amendment says only lawmakers and state regulators under rulemaking authority granted by the legislature can restrict hunting and fishing, and they they only could do so for two reasons to promote wildlife conservation and management, and to preserve the future of hunting and fishing. One of the bill's sponsors, State Representative Ron Ferguson, couldn't explain to Andrew Tobias why this is necessary. He couldn't identify a law or proposal that currently stands in the way of hunters' rights. He just said that he has talked to a lot of outdoorsmen who say they're concerned that government overreach eventually could encroach on hunting and fishing. And since that's an activity humans have been doing since the dawn of time. They should make sure it's a protected right. I mean, what the heck? What what I don't quite understand here is that they're arguing that the point of this is to prevent government overreach, but the proposal dictates that only lawmakers and state regulators can restrict hunting and fishing. I mean, isn't that who this law is supposed to be defending against? Yeah. I mean, who's <laughs> left? I, I mean, also, I, I assume this wouldn't have any impact on the rights of private property owners, right? I mean, you could still say no one can hunt or fish on my property. And can't you say- But that sounds like the the laws is, you know, this constitutional uh, proposals is is countering that notion. And couldn't you say like within city limits where it's densely populated? I mean, I'm not allowed to hunt in my backyard. I I can't shoot a deer. I I assume that this would not prevent local governments from setting regulations around those sorts of things. But- Although it doesn't say local it does, government. It doesn't say it that. So maybe so I'm just wondering, what's the real life effect they that really they're aiming to, for here? They want to get I, rid of the suburban deer. Like that's, that's he cool. he mentioned the suburban deer. He did. That, he mentions that. So so would this would this have the unintentioned unintended or intended effect of allowing people to start running around their neighborhoods with rifles to kill deer? I don't know. And could it be on proper, private property? Like, could you look out in your backyard and find some hunter who's asserting his rights? <laughs> this is it's just one of those idiotic things. The, the the people in the legislature today are such clowns. Instead of doing the people's real business, they come up with nonsense like this. I mean, it's just dumb. I mean, we, we should make up a list of things that this would be akin to. You know, you have a right to get up in the morning and see the sunrise. Well, you have a right to walk down trails in parks. I mean, last of course week, we have the right. Last week they said they weren't going to ban bans of a gas-powered cars, right? Like, doesn't this feel along similar lines? Like, no one's trying to do that. Yeah, it's just it's it's just dumb, and there's nobody trying to do what they're talking about. But but this could actually have a dangerous effect that that was was not contemplated, where people could just pull out their rifles in their crowded suburbs and start firing away. But I did find it interesting, though, that in other states that have done this, it's been model legislation from the National Rifle Association, which says a lot. But in Ohio, here, it's apparently T. Roosevelt action. And, you know, they're modeling. So Ohio is different than these others. But the National Rifle Association was behind the other ones. So are they going to have outside there? 
and it's outside Ohio interest influencing Ooh. our Constitution. I thought they didn't like that. <laughs> it's a stupid, stupid move, and you just marvel at how our legislature works in Ohio. Gerrymandering has been a disaster for the people of the state. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, Lisa, how is it possible that Cleveland, Cleveland has the fourth most expensive hotel rates in the country, higher than San Francisco, higher than Nashville, higher than Chicago? I don't get it. Yeah, it is pretty stunning. And I think uh, experts and data analysts are kind of shrugging their shoulders too. Um, But to be fair, this is only for the month of October. So a survey done by the online booking site CheapHotels.org of online hotel prices found that the average October overnight stay price in Cleveland was $234. That was up from only $187 a night last year. So Cleveland is actually number four right now behind Boston, New York City, and Austin, Texas. And Cleveland, along with Las Vegas, had the largest rate increase of 25% over last year. But September rates downtown were about 209, um, and that's up from four up 4% from last year. And the Cleveland Metro market, which includes several counties, is $138. And so that's nowhere near the highest rate. But when we asked why, Nick Minard with STR data firm um, says that Cleveland's usually has their highest hotel rates in September and October. Um, That aligns with seasonal demand. We have a lot of events coming. We have the current Forbes 30 under 30. It has 3,000 attendees. Next week, the International Elastomer Conference will bring 4,000 people to Cleveland. And there are two big concerts at Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse, two Browns home games, and then the Cavs season is about to start. So I think this is we're only going to stay at at the top for a, a little while. I thought maybe people got the date of the eclipse wrong and we're reserving rooms for now. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see if we have the highest rates next April. Uh, interesting story, unexpected. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What is going on with Westside Schools? We've had a string of school workers accused of inappropriate relationships, and now we have a school resource officer, a cop, accused of the same thing. Laura, what are the details on this one? Yeah, this is another disturbing story from Rocky River High School. A Rocky River cop named Michael Bernhardt, who served as the resource officer since about 2011 and has been with the department since 1994, was accused of, quote, inappropriate communications and possibly improper contact with a girl last spring when she was a senior at the high school. He was removed from his position on July 25th. That's when they learned about allegations. He's also on leave from the police department. And I'm telling you, as a parent in this community, people are up in arms. This is not a one-time thing. We've talked on this podcast about Dr. Heath Horton um, and his removal from Kensington Intermediate School after allegations of inappropriate relationships with students while he was the assistant principal at Rocky River High His School. Form, former students. Former students. I'm, yes. Um, I believe one was 17. So, and, and this is after a couple years after there were a, a bunch of teachers that lost their jobs after a Zoom scandal. So this is a community that wants answers from its administrators. There's a petition going around trying to get rid of the top four administrators. I, I My kids are in middle school and intermediate school right now. By the time they get to high school, I really hope the culture has changed because you cannot just say it's a bad apple when you have so many of these and there's similar issues. Yeah, there's something going on in that district. There's just, it, 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 I don't know if it's permissive or what. It's also sick. These are adults uh-huh. that are 
preying on kids. I mean, <laughs> they're trusted to keep those kids safe. The school resource officer is there to make sure the kids are safe. And that's what they're doing. You read a, his quote from when he got the job. Yeah, it was, it was in like a newsletter. I found it online. He said, this personal contact between police officer and high school student is a big part of why this pro- program was implemented, which now looking at it, you're like, ew. Yeah. And the thing is, you know, they have school resource officers, probably most districts do at all of their schools. And these kids grow up knowing police officers are supposed to, you know, create this friendly relationship. And they even auction off like um, a ride to school with the cop, with the cop in the cop car for part of homecoming. And my kids love officer Neil and they give them high fives. And so it, this is a very trusting relationship and to break this trust is really harmful to the kids. You got to think back to when you were a junior, senior in high school, if this would have happened, you would have been talking about it a lot with your friends. And how does that affect you going forward? Do you just not trust adults? Do you just figure everybody is a schemer? And if he's texting a student and apparently it turned sexual after she turned 18 in March. So that's the rest of the school year. That's two months. This is not, there are people that know about this. I'm sorry. This there's no way this girl didn't tell friends and people didn't tell other people or it's no way that no one noticed it. He's in the school every day. I'm sure someone noticed. And then no one said anything till this person came forward in July with the cell phone, which by the way is going to undergo more forensic investigation. So there's no charges right now, but there still could be in the future. Okay. So the schools put out statements to let parents know about this. Is the school building any kind of program to talk to the students about the inappropriateness of it and the and why they should report things like this and and how not all adults are out to take advantage of them? I, I would think you'd want to do some kind of training to 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 make sure that the kids are okay yeah. with this. Do you get any sense that that's happening? I have not seen that specifically. I, and I'm not a high school parent, so I'm not getting all their PTA notifications, but I haven't seen that specifically. And I haven't heard of what the staff training is because obviously you should make sure the kids are okay, but you should also let staff staff know like what's appropriate and inappropriate if apparently they can't tell the line. Well, you shouldn't have to tell somebody who's in the education system that you shouldn't be having sexual relationships (laughs) with students. I mean, that kind of a no brainer. They should know that without being told. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We have done a lot of work in recent years about the repetitious cycle of poverty, violence, and trauma with children who suffer from it, growing up and repeating it as adults. This story falls into a subcategory of that. Layla, what did we learn Tuesday about the owner of an Akron recording studio who's going to prison for fraud? Well, we're talking about Nicholas Crawford, who owns the recording studio Ohio Records in Akron, and he was sentenced Tuesday to more than eight years in federal prison for laundering drug money by by buying a $325,000 house and fraudulently obtaining a small business loan from the federal government's COVID relief funds to buy a Tesla. So that's money laundering, wire fraud, and theft of government funds. But in court this week, he, as he was apologizing to his family for what he had done, He explained that not only is he the product of a very traumatic upbringing, but also he committed these crimes during a very rough patch in his life. During that time, he saw his daughter, Nakia, and his brother killed in the span of about 14 months. Nakia was gunned down June 14th of 2020 while she was running errands with her grandmother in Akron. 
Nakia had just graduated high school and she was planning on going to Central State University. And the gunman who shot up the car believed that the car belonged to somebody else. About 14 months after that, Nicholas Crawford's brother, Thomas McDonald, was shot to death in downtown Cleveland. But the trauma in Crawford's life predates all of that. His attorney said in court that that he grew up around drugs and violence and he was sexually assaulted as a child and later lived in six foster homes, including one in which he was locked in a basement without access to food or a bathroom. Even U.S. District Judge Donald Nugent seemed to express a great deal of sympathy for what Crawford had experienced. He, he said Crawford overcame a lot of bad things in his life and had terrific business ability. And he told him, you seem like a really smart guy, a hard worker, and a good father. This is such a tragedy. But the, pro- the prosecutor in the case said in court that she's not unsympathetic to what Crawford has been through. But as an adult, he made many choices, including you know past transgressions involving drug dealing that affected other children the way he was affected as a child. So instead of breaking that cycle, he helped perpetuate it. This is an ideal example of what we talk about, though, mm-hmm. because it, obviously a smart guy, entrepreneurship, you know, businessman, knows how to do things, but six foster homes, sexual abuse, locked in a basement. Did he ever, as a youth, have one responsible adult take him under the wing and try and help? Or did he survive all of that on his own, build his business, but mm-hmm. was broken because of it? I, it's a heartbreaking story. You know, losing his teenage daughter to really random violence, uh, I, don't, I don't know how people survive that. That's soul-crushing in and of itself. But with his background, it's, it's just tragic, and it's what we talk about all the time. Unless we figure out a way to break these cycles, mm-hmm. they just repeat. That's true. I mean, I think we saw that, like you said, in our past reporting, we had you know relationships with, with families who were raising their kids in poverty. And I it was really painful to see how far the reach is of trauma that yeah. people who had great potential uh, in adulthood, these the you know some of the moms that we had gotten to know, incredible people, but you could tell the effect of the trauma that they experienced as children, they could never outrun it. It's it's hard and, for me to even talk about it. <laughs> yeah, I know. I it, it was the, the the story that Adam wrote really drove it home. Uh, it did feel like the eight years was a bit more stiff than it should have been for the crime he committed. Uh, but I guess the federal rules are the federal rules. Interesting piece. Check it out. It's on cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We have a local ramification from the Israeli war involving Hamas. Lisa, what is it? Yeah, the Cleveland Orchestra has had to cancel an upcoming tour to Israel due to safety concerns because of the outbreak of war. Um, They had three scheduled performances from the 26th through the 28th of this month at Haifa Auditorium, Tel Aviv Culture Center, and the Jerusalem Theater. In a statement, the orchestra said their decision was based on the State Department guidelines about travel. They say their thoughts are with friends and family in Israel, and they hope for their continued safety there. They will still travel to Austria, the 18th and the 20th of this month. They will be conducted by the music director Franz Belzer-Most, who will then go on leave for more treatment for a cancerous tumor that was removed earlier this year. 
And when you read about the the streets and Israel being empty and people staying indoors, you, you can see why they would not want to go there now. Hopefully they'll be able to reschedule after the hostilities are over. And people, you know, were killed at a concert. Right, right. Well, that was, yeah, right. Innocent people that were just enjoying themselves. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, Laura, how long did it end up taking for the Center Street Bridge and the Flats to reopen? And how long was it originally supposed to take? 21 months. So it closed in January 2022 for what was supposed to be 10 months of construction. But apparently the unique mechanisms and the fact that it's so old, it was built in 1901, meant that it took a whole lot longer to fix than they thought it was going to be. This is the red bridge that goes over the Cuyahoga River right by the Flatiron Cafe. Um, Our old offices for a year used to be there, so I've walked over it plenty. And it just swings to the side. It, It doesn't get lifted. It doesn't kind of break in the middle. It swings completely to the side, and somebody has to be there all the time to do that, I believe, to let the boats out and... So this is the first time we're going to be able to go back and forth right there at that spot because it's a big deal. There's only a few bridges that actually cross the flats that you can use. And it cut off businesses that needed the traffic. I, I don't really buy the explanation that, that oh, they needed special parts. You knew you needed right. special parts before you started. <laughs> Order them before you start. Yeah, you would think they would have taken a good time inspecting it, understanding what they have to do, and then calculate how to do this to cause as little inconvenience as possible. People were furious about it, and when it opened, they were celebrating it on social media that more than twice as long as it was supposed to take. Something's wrong with that situation. And it was really hard to negotiate downtown because I used the Center Street Bridge to get to the new Wendy Island Park Bridge or the mm-hmm. Willow Lift Bridge. Mm-hmm. And and there was really no easy way to get around Center Street to get there. So that was kind of a pain. Yeah, it was a huge inconvenience. It hurt the businesses and their answer like, whoops, we didn't anticipate what we needed. Why not? Next time, do better. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, Layla, from trauma to something that is about bringing bunnies to your yard. Our (laughs) gardening columnist is a fountain of sage advice for anyone wanting to grow things. But is she going too far with the latest (laughs) suggestion? Why does she advocate that we all start growing weeds? Don't we spend a lot of time getting rid of them? Yes. I mean, when I read this headline, it kind of got my hackles up because I hate weeds. And the thought of intentionally letting them flourish is a total non-starter for me. But it turns out that the weed Susan Brunstein is talking about is clover, which I probably hate the least. So I can probably get behind the case that she's making for it here. Susan says that to fight back against other weeds like creeping Charlie, crabgrass, nutsedge, and plantain, she decided to add clover when she overseeded the backyard a few years ago. Apparently clover was once a welcome part of lawns in decades ago until broadleaf herbicides included in all-in-one turf maintenance products aimed to kill it so folks could have lawns that are lush and grow only one type of grass. But clover brings a lot of good stuff to your lawn, she says. It takes nitrogen from the air, puts it into the soil, which basically means free natural fertilizer. It's more resilient to drought, which keeps the lawn looking green during those dry spells that we saw earlier this summer. And its its roots are less appealing to grubs, which means fewer critters digging up the lawn to eat those grubs. And I'm right now looking at a giant patch of torn up brown grass in my backyard. So I can really appreciate that. And its uh, its appearance is not unappealing, 
Susan comments about how fun it is for kids to search for the rare four-leaf clover and how when the flowers show up on the clover, she knows it's time to dispatch her kids to mow the lawn. So those are some strong arguments that she's making. Still, I mean, I mean, the notion of seeding the lawn with a weed. I mean, that's kind of a bold move. I have to think about that a little more. I feel like (laughs) what is a weed and what is not a weed, it's like arbitrary. In the eye of the beholder. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But but can you go to Home Depot and buy clover seed? That's a great question. I don't know. Do we know? Let me look it up while we're talking. Keep going. I do. Look, I, I, I mean, I've had clover in my yard and it's been killed, but I, it's green. And I'm at a point where as long as my yard is green, I really don't care what's out there. Uh, I do know the rabbits love it and the bees. Oh, yeah. Bees. Yeah. I have more rabbit activity in my yard than any of my neighbors who are like fertilizing and, you know, and uh, doing pesticides like to the nth degree. I have creeping char. I don't do any chemicals at all in my yard. So I have creeping charlie i have clover i have crabgrass but i don't care because it's all green and the bunnies are here the crabgrass drives me crazy you can buy bulk clover seed all over the place all over lowe's home depot amazon tractor supply this is a thing people are doing it susan brenstein's amazing (laughs) she She always gives you something to think about i uh i just love her columns and so do our readers Check out what she has to say about Clover on Cleveland.com. That's it for the Wednesday episode of Today in Ohio. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you for listening. 